Baxi's Musical Podcast. One of the first signs of the aging process is the sudden ability to think about things in major blocks of time, like 20-year intervals. I started to feel that way about 37 years ago, and it gets only worse because today I can actually remember stuff that happened 50 years ago. But I prefer not to talk about any of that. Instead, I'd much rather focus on the things that don't make me feel like a broken-down old man. So you want to feel old? Get a load of this. In 1993... The Cranberries released their very first album called Everybody Else is Doing It, Why Can't We? The album contained the international hit Dreams, and they followed that up with a second hit, the song Linger. It would become an album that would sell more than 6 million copies worldwide. This was an album that reached number 18 in the U.S. and remained on the charts for the next 130 weeks. It was an album that didn't just go platinum. It went platinum five times over. That was 30 years ago. 30 years since the Cranberries came out of Ireland and introduced the world to one of the most powerful female vocalists in rock history, the late Dolores O'Riordan. During the next eight years, the Cranberries would release four more albums, each going gold or multi-platinum before finally taking a break in 2001. After a punishing world tour that stretched through 110 cities and played before well more than a million people. But before that would happen, they would score major hits with Zombie, Ode to My Family, Ridiculous Thoughts, Salvation, Free to Decide, and Promises, all totaled, the Cranberries sold more than 50 million albums across the world during their career, and it all began 30 years ago with that first album. Sadly, Dolores O'Riordan died unexpectedly in 2018 at the age of 46. At that point, the band, which, despite their huge successes, felt it was just too great of a loss, and so the band chose to break up. Rather than try to replace somebody, who was virtually irreplaceable. But the surviving members of the band, Mike and Noel Hogan, along with drummer Fergal Lawler, have just released a special 30th anniversary edition of that first album, and it sounds absolutely amazing. To talk about the band's history, the album, and everything else in between is my guest today, Cranberries drummer Fergal Lawler on Banksy's Musical Podcast. To think about things in 30-year blocks of time, it was, you know, my yeah. father turned 80 years old, and I remember him when he was in his 20s. And <laughs> to me, it's like, oh, shit, I guess uh, it's, a, it's a surprising how fast they grow up. You start <laughs> counting then, don't you? It's like 30 years less, now it'd be 80. It's Jesus, absolutely true. You know, they must think it's fucking <laughs> generations ago, like. Yeah. Congratulations, though. Uh, I mean, 30 years since the release of uh, Everybody Else is Doing It, uh, you know, Why Can't We? And you guys are, are releasing it, or re-releasing it, I should say, uh, a 30th anniversary reissue. And it's uh, it's been remixed on something called Dolby Atmos. Tell me uh, about yes. what that is and, and what that process is all about. It's like surround sound, but surround sound is around, you know, left, right, back, behind you and stuff. But Atmos is also above and below, you know, so there's a, another dimension to it. It's, it's fascinating so it makes it more 3d it makes it more like you're what, what i found listening to it was it feels like you're either in the room when we're rehearsing or you're on the stage when we're playing live it's that kind of feeling of being surrounded by the sound but it's different to surround sound because it's more 
I don't know. It's more real, I think. Yeah. Is, is it is it better on one format or another? I mean, I know with, like, vinyl, you kind of get a, a broader width of sound than you would get certainly yeah. on an MP3. I mean, does does mm. vinyl or CD make a, make a difference in this? It would, yeah. Yeah, it would, I think. Everything always sounds better in vinyl because it's not as compressed. So with, with CD, it, 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 oh, excuse me, it does still sound amazing, you know, obviously, on MP3 because everything is mix, mixed digitally nowadays for that market, you know, so they will kind of tweak things for vinyl that they wouldn't they do differently for, for digital. So, the, the, I mean, obviously the technology for this didn't exist in, in 2018 no. when you guys no. had reissued the album. You know, with all those early demos and, and outtakes on the on the last you yeah. know, version of it. But as far as what you're hearing on this one is the average listener could definitely tell between one or the other. Yeah, there's specific headphones you need for it. Apple earpods or whatever work. You know, there's a list of um suitable headphones if you Google it that work with Atmos or whatever. But yeah, you will notice it all right. Because I tried it on regular headphones and then put on the Atmos ones and went, oh, it is different. Yeah. I went back and, and did a you know a bit of research on cranberries and it it, it really is I mean, it's kind of an amazing story. You had this huge string of albums, you know, literally and figuratively begins with the with the first one. You sell six million copies of that record and like three million of which were in the United States. I mean, you know, like, you know, one day you're just rehearsing a couple of songs in a, you know, in a rehearsal space and the next, you know, months later, all of a sudden it's this massive international hit and you're off like a cannon. It wasn't that quick now, to it, be honest. I'm sure it wasn't. It felt that quick. It, it did feel like that because, you know, we were touring around the UK and Ireland for a couple of years. Then we did our first European tour. We opened up for a band, an Irish band called the Hot House Flowers. Yeah, And we were on that tour and no one really knew us in Europe. And then we got a call saying that College Radio was playing Linger. We, we need to come over to the States and do a tour. So we went over to the States and spent six months, played pretty much nearly every state, like five or six gigs a week, you know, really slogged hard at it. And it just went up and up and up and up, you know, and the venues got bigger. It went from small little clubs to... <laughs> playing in theatres like the Fox Theatre, those kind of theatres. And then by the end of the year, we opened up for Duran Duran and they were playing in sheds and, and outdoor arenas, which was an amazing experience for us. Was there a, a point in, in that period where you said to yourselves, I mean, we clearly have something very special here and it's really connecting and connecting hard with people. Was was there a point where that became obvious to you guys? Yeah, yeah. Well, Pretty much from the first the first gig in the US. It was in Denver, Colorado. I remember it in the the Fox Theater there. And there was people stage diving and singing the words of Linger and singing the words of all the songs in the album actually. And we couldn't believe it. It was like, My God, these people know our songs. You know, and then as we were touring, we'd be watching MTV in our hotel room or whatever and, and Linger kept coming on and on and on on rotation. It was like, Oh my God, Jesus, this is really, really kicking off here. Like, I remember back and hearing Linger and Ems, you know, for the very first time and thinking, wow. I mean, Dolores's voice and her delivery and the style in which she was singing was one of those things that when you hear it for the very first time, it, it just kind of stops you in your tracks. Like you don't, mm. you hadn't heard too many voices like that. And the only one that I can really say is close, be like Sinead O'Connor and, and just the, 
just the style of her yeah. of her songs. But so knowing what it's like for me to have heard for the very first time, you know, between you and Mike and 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 Noel, since you had already been working together before she joined, what was it like the first time you heard her voice, and was it any different when you heard it? recorded for the very first time what what was what was that experience like yeah it, it, it's funny you say that um because for, when we first heard her voice it was in um she we we didn't have a pa system we, we had a small little rehearsal stu- uh space and um there was a kind of a load of different bands rehearsing and in, in like five or six bands in this place and we had a small room there and dolores's mic was plugged into a guitar amp so it sounded really crackly and you couldn't really hear it but we knew she could sing. It was, okay, you can kind of make it out, but it was really distorted and everything. So we didn't really hear her clearly until we did our first demo, like a couple of months later. And then we kind of went, oh, you know, she can really <laughs> sing. You know, I could sound it crystal clear and she was doing backing vocals with like this beautiful soprano thing. And it was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. My understanding is that you guys were introduced to Dolores at the recommendation of uh, Niall Quinn who had yes. been your who had been your previous singer? I, mm. you must have sent that guy a gift basket every six months. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for yeah, quitting. Girl, thank you was, for quitting. He, his girlfriend, uh, her sister was in school with Dolores, and he kind of put the word out and said, "You know, any anyone who who, who sings, uh, the lads are looking for another singer, uh, maybe even a girl." They they said they wouldn't mind getting a girl in to sing because something different. No, no one in Limerick had a female singer and uh, she said oh I'll ask around I think there's a friend of my sister's so then yeah she called up to that rehearsal place on the Sunday afternoon and that was the start of it yeah that actually says something pretty noble about Niall because uh, I, I mean I can't imagine like like David Lee Roth telling Eddie Van Halen hey I know this guy <laughs> Sammy Hagar I think he'd be a good replacement I can't, I can't imagine that ever happening <laughs> but uh but but when you when you heard her for the very first time just practicing you know that i don't know if it was like a like a, an official audition or what it was did you feel like okay this is this is something special right away or did what did it take some time to kind of develop into that sound for yeah, you guys it was it was more like we had a few guys try out and most of them couldn't sing you know they were just shouting and kind of looked the part but couldn't really sing so it was like okay great she can sing at least that's fantastic so start from there. We gave her a tape with, with uh, the, the music for Linger. She took it away with her and came back the following Sunday with um, most of the lyrics and, and uh, that, that uh, string line on it, da, 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 part uh, <laughs> written on a keyboard. And we were like, okay, great. Jesus, this is fantastic. A week and we have one song already. We just practiced a lot then. We, we kind of, because we were all working or whatever at the time. So any spare time we got, We'd rehearse. You know, talking about the the first album and and, and how it grew uh, into something that was like a, a blockbuster hit around the world. But you know, you guys just did something that was very unusual, especially after a, you know coming out of the gates with a hit like that. You follow it up with a bigger hit. That is, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you often hear about the difficult second album, but no need to mm-hmm. argue. Wind up selling even better than yeah. the, than the first one. You must have felt almost invincible at that point when you when you take great success and follow it up with something even more monumental. Yeah, it, it was amazing, but also a bit scary because we were really big at that point and, and the whole fame thing didn't... Because we're all fairly relaxed, shy people, you know, and the fame thing was a bit weird to deal with. It kind of took a while to kind of get to grips with it. And 
to, to kind of realize, you know, that's when you're working, you're, you're the famous person, but when you're at home, you switch off and get away from it all, you know? And it took a few years before we could kind of walk around Limerick and, and not be recognized, you know, yeah. people just kind of got used to it and didn't say anything. So yeah, it calmed down after a few years, but it was scary at the time. But, so in that period where, you, I mean, you are dealing with that kind of notoriety and, and, and fame, I mean, how how did you manage your way through that? I mean, it's it's a hell of a transition for a guy who's just a neighborhood guy, and all of a sudden, everybody mm-hmm. in the neighborhood singing, "Hey, that's that's the guy from the Cranberries." It's yeah. a it's a different thing when you know you're known around the world, but it's another thing when the people that you kind of grew up with are looking at you in, in like a totally different way. Um, kind of just got used to it uh, uh, as time went on, and and then people didn't make as much of a fuss about us at home because they'd see us all the time. It's like, oh, there's your guy from the Cranberries. Yeah, he's here all the time. You know, it. so it kind of calmed down after the initial madness of, of, of that first burst of fame or whatever. And then when you go away on tour, you're, you're expecting to be recognized because you're in town playing the gig. There's posters up everywhere. So you kind of expect it more. And it's nice then to come home and get away from all of that and just switch off. Yeah, there is something nice about being a human being again after... Getting that out of your system. Laundry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, though that's the thrilling parts of life. (laughs) But I think it's uh, it's interesting though that that when and this happens a lot with with real successful artists. You know, thank God it's done young. Like you you get that out of your system in your twenties. I mean, like I said, you and I are two guys in our fifties. There's all kinds of shit I don't have the energy for anymore. Exactly, (laughs) and I would think that when you're young, you almost don't even know any any better. But you know, in hindsight, you look at that and go, "How did I? How did I manage through that?" Yeah, well, we were we toured a lot back then, so we were all in the bus together, going through it all at the same time. So we could all relate to that. You know, we were like in our own insular bubble when we were off on tour, and you know, we just kind of were a bit bemused by the whole thing and going I can't believe can't believe it you know and just make the most of it and enjoy enjoy the ride you know but now looking back and in your, in your 50s you just go oh no I I, oh, God, I don't know no. if I could do that again <laughs> I don't know how the stones do it and, and people like that because you know Jesus they're 70 late 70s even now I don't, I don't know how they have the energy for touring it's incredible yeah they're a real anomaly because they do have been doing it for as long as they have yeah. And when you see them, I mean, they still have a certain energy oh, yeah. uh, have, at, yeah, yeah. at 70, nearly 80 years old. And, and like I said, you know, that's my dad's age. I can't even, yeah. I can't even imagine my dad <laughs> on stage doing Locking that. Out, like, yeah. Absolutely. There is a, it is interesting though, that you have the success, the first two albums and the, the success can continues. It may not have been at the same at the same level as it has been the first two records, but you know, the first four records or, you know, four or five records by, by the Cranberries. I know at some point you guys decided to take a, a break and uh, kind of walk away from it for a, a good number of years. I think it's 2003. Uh, if I got that right. That, yeah. That you around may have... that to 2009, I think. What was the, the determining factor in, in, in stepping away from it all? It had been, as you said, like five albums of, album tour album tour album tour the fun went out of it you know it just became like a slog and we were kind of like you know we started doing this because we love making music and we love playing live or whatever and now it's 
become like a really hard job that no one enjoys and we were kind of getting knacky with each other and just not it wasn't enjoyable anymore we said like let's take a few years off see yeah. how we feel and if we want to come back to it then we come back to it you were all feeling that simultaneously like there was no one saying yeah, no pretty let's much. yeah yeah is yeah. it is it just the exhaustion of it or is it you know, is it just like a like a psychological thing like yeah, you know, I just I just want to get back to that part of my life where I am a human being again. I am doing laundry. Mm. I'm washing a dish. Yeah, you know, I'm cooking my own meal. Is I mean, is is it that, or is it is it something more complicated? It is. Yeah, it is that. It's just, it's a simple fact of, of, you know, we were all having kids at that stage as well. And you don't want to be away for like six months, and then back for a couple of weeks and away for six months again. You know, it, it it's. It's very, very hard to do that. And I didn't want to bring my kids in the road because I don't don't really, it just didn't suit me. Yeah. I didn't think it was a, a healthy place for, for my for my kids to be. You know, I didn't want to be, you know, getting them all ready and jumping from one town to the next. It's, it's not really a healthy environment, in my opinion. Yeah. You know? and, and to even, or to not do that and then leave them behind and all of a sudden you're, you know. So hard. Absolutely. So hard, yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking, like it really is heartbreaking. And knowing that, when the time came around where everybody had done enough time away from all this and, uh, and experienced what you're talking about, mm. when the time got to reform, you know, that always, to me, that always sounds like a much more complicated thing than just saying, let's get the band back together. Because after you know, a period of time, everyone's you know, everyone's priorities are different than when you were 22 years old and, and starting yeah. out. How complicated was it to get back together? Did it just seem like the right time or was it or was that a hard choice to get back? No, Dolores, her son was been christened i think it was his christening it was some party anyway for, for our son so we all met up and we were chatting and i was saying like you know i wonder what it'd be like to go back out on the road and we kind of got chatting and said look we'll, we'll go in and do a bit of rehearsal and see how it f feels sure two or three days into it and it was like we never stopped playing you know that just clicked <laughs> automatically again it was like sure you know, we might go out and do a few gigs, so will we? <laughs> and we kind of got talking, and we were like, "Yeah, yeah, it seems good. It sounds good." Um, we we kind of made a promise to to not be as hectic in the touring schedule as we had been in our younger days. Yeah, you know, because we said, "Look, we want to do this for fun and try and enjoy it." You know, and and kind of do two two or three weeks on, take a couple of weeks off, a few weeks on, a few weeks off. That sounds yeah. like a much healthier way to mm. have done it i mean if, if do you think that if you had done if you had taken that approach you know prior to 2003 there would have been a need for a break or or do you think that, or would that have hurt you helped you what do, what do you think would have been the case had you yeah, done it right I along it, i think it might have worked it's hard to know it, you know in hindsight i think it might have worked because there's a lot of country artists in the states that do that you know they'll kind of head away for four or five days do a few gigs and then head back home it's a lot easier to do that in the states because you know you can drive to a few different states do a right. few gigs come back home again you know but but it's it i think that's a, that's what inspired us when, when we heard some of the bus drivers talking about you know those country tours kind of going geez that sounds doable you know was there any pressure from outside the four of you to reform i mean you had sold so many records by that point i mean did, did island never come back and say hey let's uh let's get this thing going again we could use a few no, more bucks in our pocket 
it was more when we wanted to stop is yeah. where the pressure was like you can't stop you can't no everyone will forget you you can't do you know you can't you can't you can't and we kind of said we have to you know otherwise we're just going to implode yeah so but when we got back together that was our decision and then we kind of told them after we we had decided several years later obviously you know, dolores is having some uh, health issues and a couple of records have been done but but dates are getting canceled how much did you realize the extent of, of what she was going through health-wise um not really until the last three years well we knew she was struggling on the third album um to the faithful departed she was really freaked out by the whole fame thing and everything and um, she had injured her knee skiing and was suffering badly on stage trying trying to perform and then the pressure of trying to perform and then you know it was a lot of a lot of things going on around that third album that just of uh, the tour we'll say for to the fateful departed she w- went and got some counseling af- after that and that helped quite a bit but to be honest we thought even she thought for a long time that it was just the, the struggles of of dealing with fame you know and uh, she wasn't properly diagnosed until towards the end of her life, the last few years, you know, where uh, her mental health was in a bad state, you know, and she needed to get proper help and medication. And, and, and she was starting to feel quite balanced after that. It was like, you know, OK, you know, she felt great. It was like, thank God. I thought I was mad, but it's just this, you yeah. know, she was feeling a lot better about herself and she was in mu- much better spirits, you know. At the time she had died, obviously it came as quite a shock to fans, quite obviously. But, you know, for the three of you, Mike and, and Noel and yourself, it's a substantial loss. I mean, you're not just talking about losing a friend that you've been close to for 30 years, but there's other significant realities that come along with it. One of those is to not continue as an active band. Was that an easy decision to make or were, were there discussions about, you know, well, what do we do next? I mean, do we... Do we find a way to carry on? Could we do that? Or did you just say, no, that there's no duplicating this? No. Dolores is like a sister to me, you know, and I, I still I still can't believe it some days, you know, that she's that she's gone. And, and then you hear a song on the radio or something, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's crazy, really, you know. I yeah. can't, I can't, uh, I still can't kind of fully grasp it. And I just try and, remember all the positive things and remember the good memories and that kind of keeps me going but yeah for me there was no way I would uh, have considered carrying the band how can you I mean she has such a unique voice and personality that this it'd be an insult to try and try and replace her I, I, I you know I, I never is it hard to listen to the old music or or do you do you just look at this point because it's been a number of years do you look at it more as like you know more fond memories than than sadness? It's, it depends on the day, you know. I imagine, you know, some days you're feeling strong enough and you're feeling good, and the song comes on the radio and you leave it on. Other days, it's like, oh god, yeah. So I turn yeah. it off. Or... I, I want to switch gears here a little bit because uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to make us all about you know, sadness and gloom, but <laughs> uh, I also play drums and and uh, not very well. But I'm always intrigued about the kind of things that inspire a, a drummer to have played as a kid to pick up the the drums. Like I said, you and I are are, are within the ballpark of the of the same age. What were the things you were listening to as a kid that that made you fixate on on drums and, and seriously as you needed to take it? Um, I didn't actually start playing until I was 17. Really, so it was kind of a late starter. Yeah, and and Noel and Mike 
didn't get their instruments till six months later. <laughs> so we were, yeah, we were late starters. And I think that's what made us work hard, harder to, to try and get good, you know? That's actually pretty incredible. You're starting at 17 and by 22, mm. selling millions of records. That's uh, yeah. that's a pretty it's fast, yeah, that's a pretty fast yeah. trajectory. But what, but what were you listening to that led you to drums? Pure, um, New Order, Joy Division, Smiths, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin. I don't know what, why I clicked with the drums. It's just a rhythm thing. I was a break dancer when I was younger, and, and I kind of always liked dancing, you know, and that, that rhythm thing. I don't know what it was. It was just something that clicked. And um, a friend of mine had a drum kit, and... He said, come down and have, have a look. And The Cult, I remember, you know that band, The Cult? I do, um, yeah. I was into them at the time. And and, and he said, oh, I love removing machine. He started playing it. And I was like, Jesus Christ. You know, I could I could actually hear that. <laughs> I think it was my first time ever sitting beside a drum kit. And he said, sit down, give it a go. And he said, you know, push your foot here with this and hit. And I started playing. And he was like, oh my God, have you played before? And I was like, no. <laughs> I said, geez, you better get a drum kit because you have a knack for it. So I said, okay. And then the following Christmas, I got this 300 quid. It was like, uh, Mike used to call them the wallpaper drums because they looked like they had wallpaper on them. They were really <laughs> cheap, blue, uh, kind of peeling off. But that was the start of it, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. But I know that, uh, like, so when I play now, because there's all kinds of things that uh, all my physical limitations have all seemed to crest into the 50s. <laughs> but it... When I play now, I find that I make adjustments in a way that make certain things easier. I mean, I just couldn't. Easier, do, yeah. Yeah, like, like there's certain things I could do with 22, but I can't do. But because of the limitations that aging has afforded you, I actually think I do them more efficiently and better. Do you find that when you play now, or is it different? Um, yeah, I do find, yeah. Well, I haven't played much in the past couple of years. So I've been concentrating on other instruments I've been doing music for soundtracks and stuff like that but my daughter is playing so I'll sit down and play something and then say you know try this or I'll watch her playing and go yeah if you do it this way it might be a bit easier so I do find <laughs> yeah with, with the, the physical limitations of being over 50 you have to yeah um, <laughs> kind of think about how, how can I make this easier on my my bones is, so they don't rattle as much. Isn't there a part of you that wants to like, you know, start banging your daughter's bedroom door and say, cut that crazy racket there. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's something like my no, parents would have done. No, no, definitely not. No, <laughs> no. She's good taste in music, but my older guy, I have two boys and a girl and the middle guy has a varied taste. He listened to the crappiest twee pop music, you know, and then he'll have a bit of Radiohead or some, heavy metals and he's kind of bits of everything he's mad it's like okay i like that one but the other one i don't think so please the noise <laughs> you mentioned your your work in uh, in in soundtrack recording tell me a, a bit about that and, and transitioning from a rock star into into that realm mm. it's something i always wanted to do it was something that was always in the back of my mind but never really i never really had the confidence for it and um when we took that break in 2003 I had a small little studio beside my house and I kind of, I opened it up for bands to come in and, and I kind of learned, taught myself to record, uh, to be like an engineer or whatever and, and record other bands. I did that for a few years. And then I think it was around 2013, we had a bit of time off. 
we kind of had, had a year or so off and I went back, I went to university in the University of Limerick and there was a, a great uh, music technology course there and I, I did a master's and that just really kind of gave me the confidence to kind of say, okay, maybe I could write some of my own stuff and started writing little bits of instrumental bit, bits and pieces and then ended up meeting uh, a few people directors and that who were doing short films and documentaries and I started doing little bits and pieces for them and then it gradually grew and I, I still do a couple a couple or three a year not I don't want to do too much because I want to do my own stuff as well I I, right. I released an album last year of just instrumental music so it's nice to do things like that because you're on a time limit and you're under pressure but then right. it's nice to step away from it and have no pressure and just make music for myself so it's yeah it's the best of both worlds it's fantastic what do you prefer do you, do you prefer you know, making music to somebody else's storyline or visuals or or making music on your own? What Do you have a preference? Is one easier than the other? No. Sometimes it's, it's easier when you have a schedule and you have a bit of pressure because you say, I have to get this done by Wednesday, you know? And it's like, oh, my God, is it good? Is it not good? And then you send it to them and they go, oh, yeah, I love it. And it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, whereas when you're the only one and you don't have a schedule you know you can get a bit lazy not lazy but you can get a bit self-indulgent and you kind of have to reel yourself in and go okay hold on a second so i have a few friends i'll send them stuff and go what you think of this is it up its own ass a bit and they're like no no it's great (laughs) okay fine i was worried because i thought it was complete and utter crap and i was gone insane (laughs) so yeah you can get a bit carried away uh, I don't want to keep you forever here, but uh, the 30th anniversary of the album sounds terrific. Brand new, newly mixed and everything. But you're exactly 18 months away from the 30th anniversary of the second record. Is there yeah. is, is there anything being planned for, for that? Well, there's actually a 25th anniversary of um, the, the Fateful Departed, which was delayed mm. because of COVID and all that. So that's actually coming out at the end of this year, hopefully just after the summer. It's it's soon anyway. It's definitely either autumn or before autumn, um, because it had been planned for Jesus two years ago, and it's just all the delays. Uh, there was a shortage of vinyl, I think, as well was another issue that was going on, yeah. and there was some clearance issues with songs, and because we found a load of stuff that we kind of didn't know we had, and remembered some demos we did with a different producer in Paris for that album. Um, so there's three songs that no one has ever heard before. Is there a lot of unreleased Cranberries material or is it just bits and pieces and, and old demos? No, yeah, mostly bits and pieces and demos and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds interesting. I'm sure it's going to be uh, great when it comes out. Brilliant. Fergal, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck with uh, with the releases and uh, and everything else and uh, and especially with your with your work on, uh, on soundtracks. That sounds really interesting stuff. Thank you so much. Nice Thanks to meet you, Fergal. Thank Thanks you so much. Again, the Cranberries' first album, Everybody's Doing It, Why Can't We, is getting a special 30th anniversary reissue on Dolby Atmos. If you're a fan, you're going to love it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think, and thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.